Welcome to the AGC Constructor Cast. I'm your host, Amy Hager. With me now is David Ashna, Director of Political Affairs here at AGC. And with our midterm elections over, we figured it'd be a good chance to find out what all happened. So, David, can you give us a quick overview of the elections? Sure. Thanks, Amy. Uh, the long uh, 2018 midterm election cycle drew to a close uh, on November 6th, and as it was predicted by most uh, political pundits and analysts, uh, split government is coming back to Washington, D.C. Uh, Republicans expanded their majorities in the U.S. Senate, uh, while Democrats won a majority of seats in the U.S. House of Representatives and also picked up uh, several governorships. We saw a a record number of voters take to the polls uh, to participate in these elections. Uh, And according to CBS News, uh, this is actually the first midterm in history to exceed uh, over 100 million votes, uh, with about 49 percent of the eligible voting population uh, participating in this election. Wow. So certainly a good thing for for voter participation and folks getting out and heading to the polls. Well, and you talked just a little bit about it, but give us a little more on how this outcome compares to historical results. Sure. So looking at the election, uh, just in terms of the history of what's taken place in midterms, uh, that's never a a good sign for a incumbent party uh, Mm -hmm. for the president. Uh, In the 21 midterm elections since 1934, uh, the president's party has lost an average of 27 seats in the House and four seats in the Senate. Uh, In only six elections uh, has the president's party actually gained seats in both chambers. So uh, this election was certainly a mixed result for both parties. Uh, Mm -hmm. They can both claim sort of a victory uh, with Democrats with their House uh, results and gubernatorial results and uh, with Republicans with their increase in the Senate. And so one thing also that I'm hearing in the news is the exit polls. What was interesting to you there? So exit polls are always conducted uh, following an election uh, instead of kind of the opinion polls that you get heading into an election. Okay. uh, These actually take place after and kind of give the news services a good understanding of how voters um, felt heading uh, in and then exiting the polls. Uh, First, we saw the number of first-time voters rise. Uh, In the 2016 election, uh, that group only made up 10% of the electorate uh, and favored Hillary Clinton by 19%. Uh, In this election, uh, that number jumped actually up to 16% uh, and still favored Democratic candidates uh, by a margin of 24%. Oh, wow. So then what about the youth vote? Did they come out in the masses? Yeah, so there's always a big talk about how big is the turnout going to be with millennials, with young voters. Like past midterms, uh, we did experience another drop-off. Young voters did not come out and vote uh, in the midterms as they did in the 2016 presidential election. According to the exit polls, just 13% of voters aged 18 to 29 voted, uh, which is kind of on par with past midterm elections, at least going back uh, looking at the 2014 uh, election. Uh, Interestingly, though, uh, this group did vote more Democratic than it did uh, when Donald Trump was on the ballot just two years earlier. Hmm. Uh, They voted uh, 67% Democratic this time uh, compared to 55% last time. And uh, the other thing, too, is not just focusing on the youth vote, uh, but looking at all voters, uh, the percentage of voters aged 30 to 44 and 45 to 64 stayed pretty similar to that in 2016. But uh, the percentage of voters aged 65 and older rose from 16% uh, in 2016 uh, to a higher 26% uh, this year. So a 10% jump in, in just two years. So I know the exit polls, they asked the voters about issues that are important to them. What was 
the top topic as they were exiting this year? So 41% of voters stated that healthcare was the top issue, mm-hmm. uh, followed by immigration, the economy, and gun policy. Uh, I think if you saw many of the ads uh, that Republican and Democratic candidates were running, and I think uh, uh, most voters did see a lot of these ads, Right. <laughs> uh, they either tended to focus on health care if you were a Democratic candidate or immigration if you were a Republican candidate. But of the 41 percent uh, who did respond that health care was their top issue, uh, it was really split along partisan lines, with that being 75 percent uh, Democrats uh, compared to 23 uh, percent who were Republicans. Mm-hmm. So a similar split was also found on gun policy and a reverse split heavily favoring Republicans was found on immigration and economic issues. So typically midterm elections are billed as a vote for or against our sitting president. Um, What did voters say about President Trump this year? Well, first a few things. Uh, For those leaving the exit polls, uh, 54% held an an unfavorable view uh, of the president's job performance, with just 45% approving. 38% also said that their vote was a symbolic vote in opposition of the president, uh, with only 26% saying that they were there to vote in support of him. Uh, Interestingly enough, uh, 33% uh, said that the president was actually not a factor uh, in their vote uh, for either uh, a Senate race, a House race, or state and local offices. Uh, But there was some good news for the president and and all of that uh, data, especially now with an incoming Democratic majority in the House. Mm -hmm. Uh, 56% of voters said that Congress should not impeach uh, the president uh, compared to just uh, 39% that should. Hmm, Okay, so let's dig a little deeper on the actual results. And let's go ahead and start with the Senate. What happened there? So first, this was certainly a good Senate map for Republicans. Uh, At the onset of the election cycle, they definitely expected to make gains, with 10 states uh, having Democratic senators up for re-election in states won by the president in 2016. Uh, As you saw on election night, it was certainly good news for Senate Republicans as they held the chamber uh, and saw their majority grow as Democratic Senators Heidi Heitkamp in North Dakota, Joe Donnelly in Indiana, and Claire McCaskill in Missouri uh, fall to their Republican challengers. Uh, It also appeared that Senator John Tester up in Montana uh, might have also been on the precipice of losing on election night, uh, but with enough of those votes being counted uh, throughout that process, uh, the race was eventually called in his favor. Mm -hmm. Uh, So West Virginia's Joe Manchin, another Democratic senator up for re-election, also fought back a tough challenge from Attorney General Patrick Morrissey. Uh, And then the one Republican loss that we saw uh, of an incumbent was in Nevada with Senator Dean Heller falling to Democratic first-term Congresswoman Jackie Rawson. So out of the races that have been called, uh, Republicans have netted two seats. Uh, Mm -hmm. As I said, they picked up Indiana, Missouri, and North Dakota, and unfortunately they were uh, lost Nevada. So what hasn't been called yet and what's going on there? The outstanding race would be down in Mississippi, where we don't have a a recount or a situation where we're still counting votes, uh, but one where we'll have a runoff uh, coming up uh, later this month. Oh. 
this election will feature uh, the appointed Senator Cindy Hyde-Smith, the Republican. Uh, she'll face off against former U.S. Agricultural Secretary and ex-Mississippi Congressman Mike Espy. Hyde-Smith uh, placed first in the preliminary vote uh, on November 6th and ended up with just about 41.5 percent of the vote. Uh, close to securing a majority, but not enough, uh, since there were other candidates on the ballot, including State Senator Chris McDaniel. Uh, He pulled enough of the vote away with 16.4% of the vote uh, to deny her uh, a win outright in the first round. Uh, So that will be determined by a runoff later this month, and that race is expected to go to the incumbent senator. So then what about the results for the Association's Political Action Committee, AGC PAC? So of the 35 Senate races that were up for election, AGC PAC contributed to 16 candidates running on Election Day. Uh, As of today, nine of the 16 candidates have won their election, four lost. We do have some good news in terms of the folks that we did support with the election of Mike Braun in Indiana. Uh, The Senate will add a new member who has a connection to the construction industry. Uh, Senator-elect Braun served as president and CEO of Meyer Distributing and uh, does have some experience in real estate development. So good news uh, for the construction industry. Yeah, definitely. Well, so let's turn to the House of Representatives. A lot happened in those races on election night, right? Absolutely. (laughs) Uh, But as predicted, uh, Democrats secured the necessary 218 seats to hold a majority going into the 116th Congress. Uh, Simply put, I'd say the number of competitive seats Republicans had to defend was just too large. Uh, The problem there was just compounded by the fact that in many of these seats uh, that are located in suburban districts, uh, the voters there just hold an unfavorable view of the president, and that proved a a difficult obstacle for a lot of these Republican candidates to overcome. Mm -hmm. Uh, Heading into Election Day, uh, the nonpartisan Cook Political Report listed uh, a lot of the overall competitive races as follows. Uh, They had 12 seats that were likely Democratic, 16 seats that were lean Democratic, 30 seats that were rated as toss-up, 29 seats rated as lean Republican, and 29 seats rated as likely Republican. Democrats were able to pick up all 18 Republican seats listed as likely or lean Democratic, uh, and Democrats were also able to flip at least 13 Republican toss-up races two lean Republican races, and one likely Republican race. Um, On the other hand, Republicans were only able to flip three Democratic seats, uh, and those uh, were in, actually two of them were in Minnesota in the first and eighth congressional districts, and one seat in Pennsylvania in the 14th congressional district. Uh, The prime targets for a lot of these Democratic pickups were in seats uh, that were won by Hillary Clinton in 2016. Uh, In fact, there were 20 three Republican districts uh, that Hillary Clinton won. So how did the AGZ PAC do in terms of support for House candidates then? So for the races that featured an AGZ PAC-backed candidate running on Election Day, 151 of the 181 House candidates were successfully elected, including at least eight who have a connection to the construction industry, whether that's in commercial construction, real estate development, engineering, or residential building. Well, let's turn a little closer to home for our listeners. There were a lot of governorships up for election, right? What happened there? Going into the election, Republicans held 33 governorships compared to the 16 held by Democrats, uh, and then there is one governorship that is held by an independent. 
Democrats were hoping to make gains in this election. Uh, when Republicans had 26 states they had to defend, and Democrats did make gains, okay. uh, with Democrats converting uh, Republican governorships in Illinois, Kansas, Maine, Michigan, Nevada, New Mexico, and Wisconsin, uh, particularly in Michigan, Wisconsin, Illinois, and Kansas, uh, the gubernatorial results will certainly have a major effect upon the 2021 redistricting. Uh, Republicans held the critical redistricting states of Florida and Ohio, uh, and all but New Hampshire and Vermont, uh, because those two states award their governors only two-year terms. Uh, the governors elected this year will hold a veto pen over the new redistricting maps for the House of Representatives and state legislative chambers. Well, I feel like a discussion about our midterm elections would not be complete if we didn't look ahead for 2020. So, David, is it too early to start talking about it? It is never too early to start (laughs) talking about 2020. In fact, uh, the 2020 cycle began uh, the day after Election Day. Uh, On that ballot, voters will elect a a president. Uh, Either they will reelect President Trump or select a new one. Uh, All 435 members of the House will be up for election, as will 33 U.S. senators, uh, 11 governors, and countless local and state officials. Uh, Before those elections take place, though, uh, three states, being Kentucky, Louisiana, and Mississippi, will actually hold gubernatorial elections in 2019. Okay. Uh, While it's uh, certainly too early to prognosticate on the House races, uh, at least 11 Senate seats, I'd say, are likely to be competitive uh, in the new cycle. Democrats have two obvious targets, Maine Senator Susan Collins and Colorado Senator Cory Gardner. Uh, They're the only two Republicans up for re-election in blue states. Uh, Their other possible targets include the open Arizona seat, uh, Iowa Senator Joni Ernst, and uh, North Carolina Senator Tom Tillis. Republicans also have uh, several possible targets. Uh, Atop their list is Senator Doug Jones, who won the special Alabama election against uh, Roy Moore. Uh, And their other possible targets will include uh, Senators Gary Peters in Michigan, uh, Jeff Merkley in Oregon, uh, Gene Shaheen in New Hampshire, uh, Tom Udall in New Mexico, and Mark Warner in Virginia. So what about President Trump? So uh, we do know that he has confirmed his intent to run for re-election in 2020 uh, and is actively assembling his campaign, which uh, is expected to be headquartered in Northern Virginia. Several Republicans, such as Ohio Governor John Kasich, but I think at this point any attempt to deny him uh, the nomination would be likely to fail. Mm -hmm. Uh, It would be more of a symbolic challenge than than anything else. Uh, But uh, there is some difficulty with that for a sitting president. For reference... Uh, No incumbent president has faced a serious primary challenge this century, and oftentimes when presidents do face uh, a primary election, they wind up losing the general election. Okay. So looking uh, uh, to the other side of the aisle, uh, political pundits and and analysts are expecting that some 30 candidates may enter the Democratic primary. Uh, So if you thought that the Republican primary uh, fielded a large number of candidates uh, in 2016, uh, this is likely to to far outnumber that. Mm -hmm. Um, What I would expect is least to to kind of categorize uh, the candidates that, that may be considering running Uh, and looking to former candidates who have run before, like Joe Biden, Hillary Clinton, John Kerry, Martin O'Malley, or Bernie Sanders. Uh, Then you've got former Obama cabinet officials uh, like Eric Holder, 
sitting U.S. senators like Cory Booker, uh, Kamala Harris, uh, Amy Klobuchar, and Elizabeth Warren, um, former or current members of the U.S. House, uh, John Delaney, Seth Moulton, Tim Ryan, uh, or Eric Swalwell. And then you've got a number of governors, uh, including former Montana Governor Steve Bullock, Colorado Governor John Hinkenlooper, uh, former Virginia Governor Terry McAuliffe, mm-hmm. and former Massachusetts Governor Deval Patrick, uh, also a number of mayors, uh, and including some billionaires like uh, Michael Bloomberg, uh, Howard Schultz, uh, Time Steyer, and of course, uh, for who uh, can't continue to get out of the news, uh, interesting candidates like Michael Avenatti, uh, <laughs> the attorney for uh, Stormy Daniels. So you're saying it's going to continue to be interesting. Uh, Every election cycle is certainly interesting. And when a presidential candidate uh, is on the ballot, it always makes it a little bit more interesting. Well, thanks, David, for all that insight. Next, we're going to turn it to Stephen Sanher, CEO of AGC. And I want to talk big picture. How is Congress going to get stuff done? So, well, let's first take a, a step back and look at the election results. In the House, um, it looks like the Democrats have picked up at least 32, could be as high as 35, 36 seats. Mm-hmm. So they, they will have a majority. But interestingly, they're going to have a, an operating majority that's less than what the Republicans have now. Uh, right now, the Republicans have 240 seats. If the Democrats are 234, 235, mm-hmm. then that narrow majority um, could prove to be problematic for them. So keep in mind this. A lot of their gains were in suburban districts. So these are not true blue seats. These are not urban uh, seats on the coast. These are suburban seats in Virginia and Pennsylvania and Ohio and Kansas City, uh, Oklahoma City. So these are not dark blue um, districts. So the the challenge that either party has, uh, and uh, if you take a look at the last few years of the Republicans in the House and how difficult it was for them to get any bills through the House, um, has been that their caucus was in many ways captured by their extreme, mm-hmm. uh, where you had Tea Party, Freedom Caucus, very conservative members of Congress, even though they were not the the large portion of the Republican caucus, they were of sufficient number that they could gum up the works. I think the Democrats are going to have the same problem. Uh, their, their extremes, their progressive caucus will be looking to move uh, positions of, of principles uh, that they hold dear. And in doing so, it puts those moderates, these new suburban Democratic members of Congress, in a difficult place. Uh, and so that will have uh, a leadership challenge for Nancy Pelosi or whoever is Speaker of the House. Mm-hmm. So then what does the work to improve infrastructure look like? Well, I mean, the, the good news on uh, the infrastructure uh, discussion has been leaders of both parties and the president have mentioned that one area that does generate bipartisan support and cooperation is infrastructure. And if you take a look at many of the infrastructure bills that have passed the three, last three or four years, they, they pass Congress with overwhelming majorities. Mm-hmm. 
If you take a look at what the president has proposed, his $1.5 trillion over 10-year infrastructure plan, it's, it's thin on how we pay for it. And uh, while everybody from both parties likes to talk about the need to address the infrastructure deficit, when you start talking about how do we pay for it, uh, they want to change the subject uh, because they recognize that the way you pay for it uh, is, is going to be painful. It's going to be increases in user fees or taxes or sales taxes or registration fees. Uh, and that is not a place uh, where the Democratic majority in the House wants to step into uh, for fear that right off the bat they'll be accused by Republicans as being tax and spend. So uh, that, that is something that will be a real challenge for us. Uh, how do we identify methods to pay for this that are an easier political pill to swallow. Mm -hmm. um, you know, a lot of people like to point out that uh, public-private partnerships are a way to go because you get private investment in, in infrastructure projects. And that's, yeah, that's terrific. Uh, we're for them. Uh, we advocate for them. But it's not a panacea. There are a lot of people that think that magically private capital is going to flow into infrastructure programs, regardless of whether or not that capital is going to enjoy a, a healthy return. Um, that is the, the challenge. Uh, Goldman Sachs is not going to invest in a, a toll road in Topeka, Kansas. Mm -hmm. um, they want to invest in a toll road or a toll bridge in, in a more populated area of the country. That makes sense. Um, so then what can AGC members do mm -hmm. to make sure that we keep the momentum moving forward? Well, I th first of all, I think it's important for AGC members to continue to remind their members of Congress that the infrastructure deficit is real. It exists. It's not going away. Right. Uh, that in order to sustain our economy and the, and the growth that we've enjoyed in the past couple years, um, it's necessary that people and goods can move efficiently, that we have clean air and clean water. Uh, and that the backbone of the country's economy can't be neglected. Now, having said that, um, you'll get a lot of nods from members of Congress to say, yeah, I agree with you, and then you get into the discussion, okay, now how are we going to pay for it? And I think that's where we have to be. Um, I'm honest by reminding them that, look, there are no easy answers for how to pay for this. And frankly, it's going to require Democratic leaders and Republican leaders to get together if this is an important enough issue for them to determine, okay, we're going to take, we'll both take a political hit. Um, we'll see. I think the other part of, uh, of this is that, you know, this is a priority for the president. Is he going to be willing to work deals with the Democratic House in order to get this done? Um, I think that remains to be seen. The point of the matter is, is that uh, the problem is real, the challenge is real, and we've got to be smart in how we try to guide people into making difficult political decisions, but do it in the most painless way that we can come up with. That makes sense. Well, thanks, Steve, for taking a few minutes with us today. Thank you. And thank you all for listening. This has been the AGC Constructor Cast. Mm -hmm.